Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Society Publishers' books are so green, you could eat them. We print all our books in North America, never overseas, on 100% post-consumer recycled paper. We've been a carbon-neutral company since 2006. Our employees are shareholders, and we are a certified B Corporation. At New Society, we care deeply about what we publish, but also about how we do business. Find out more at newsociety.com. Now, I was first introduced to Kristen Crash through Atulia Bingham, the well-known author and natural builder who's been on the show a few times now. She told me about the incredible little project in Ecuador focused on regenerating the native cloud forest and off-grid living, and that I had to speak with Kristen about her journey directly. So when I got to chat with Kristen, I was amazed at how well she knew her bioregion and the experience she could speak from about getting her dream project off the ground with her partner in the last few years. Three short years ago, Kristen and her partner Juan bought a degraded piece of land that she describes as a green desert, because though it was covered in non-native pasture grasses, the original tropical forest had been logged and was struggling to grow back. They called their project Sueño de Vida, and set out with the goal of turning it into a nature reserve, permaculture farm, natural building project, and education center dedicated to forest restoration and sustainable living. In this interview, Kristen gives a remarkably well-informed explanation of how the industries in her area have left damaged ecosystems in their wake and the challenges of trying to restore them. She and I talk about the similarities and hilarious mishaps that we've both experienced with our respective projects and getting them off the ground with limited time and resources. She also walks me through the evolution and stages of their reforestation plan and some of the experiments that they've done and the sites that they've observed around them to help them move forward. She also gives great advice for people who are interested in starting this kind of lifestyle and how to plan for an off-grid transition. Now before we get started, if you want to know more about similar projects to this one, check out the previous two episodes from this series on reforestation and agroforestry. I've got great interviews from Jairo Rodriguez in southern Mexico and Alex Kronick, a good friend of mine from Guatemala, who are both working to regenerate the tropical forests in their area through different techniques and resources. The three of these interviews are meant to be something of a trilogy of relatively small-sized private land projects dedicated to a mixture of native forest regeneration as well as ecotourism and minor farming for economic viability in the tropics. All three have a lot in common, but with different approaches to reach their goals. You can find links to all these episodes on the website at AbundantEdge.com. So with that said, I'll hand things over now to Kristen. We can just uh, kind of start off with some background. Uh, so, like, Kristen, I know that you've been, how long have you been now in Ecuador? Uh, we've been here for four years now, and we, we moved on to our land three years ago. Okay, so you've been there three so years full time, uh, and doing... you started it like four years ago, mm-hmm. not full time. You weren't. Yeah, there at all. we were in Quito. We we came down. We didn't have any land. We came down. We we were living in Quito uh, with uh, my partner's family, with Juan's family, which was 
like really interesting for me because I haven't lived with a family for like, you know, over 20 years. So now I've been with this family, you know. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was intense. I was like, <laughs> and um, so we were in Quito for about eight or nine months. And we, as soon as we got a, we got a, a little rundown SUV, we got this Russian Jeep, a Neva Lada. I don't know if you've ever heard of these, but they're no. these Russian, Russian Jeeps from like the 1970s, but they can go anywhere. They're like tractors. And so we got one of those and uh, we started driving around kind of like remote areas uh, looking for a place to pitch camp, and um, it we in uh, uh, July of uh, 2016, we uh, we we dug out our first uh, first foundations, first the first trenches went in the ground, and uh, it's pretty surreal to look back at the pictures because it's just like a, a flattened out area with four four circles dug in the ground, spray painted circles, and started digging and it you know they kind of look like we're uh, calling the aliens or something it's just these like four <laughs> circles in the ground like our, our tent or yeah. in the middle and uh so yeah that was that was the beginning and that was uh july 2016 so it's been almost exactly three years that's awesome so wait exactly. okay so here let's uh let's start <laughs> and, from uh, the beginning yeah that was it that was all, all we had people were so funny because they would you know they'd see these pictures so let's start from the beginning and if you could start by giving me an idea like how did the idea for this project form and what were your primary motivations in going out to ecuador in the first place yeah so like i said um our motivations at first were a little more cloudy because um I had been a yoga teacher for 16 years in, in DC and uh, I had done a lot of sort of like urban permaculture, guerrilla gardening, you know, growing food wherever I lived, up, up trellises and in containers and in alleys, but I didn't have any large scale land regeneration experience. And, and I'll tell you what, honestly, I mean, I swear to God, this is the absolute truth. Like we watched a lot of TV. We watched Alaskan Bush people. We watched The Last Frontier. We watched all these shows where people go off the grid and and they you know sort of have these really hard, vigorous but free lives. And and we're like, yeah, we're 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 gonna do that. I mean, it was it was pretty that it was that far out. Um, at first, I was sort of clinging a little bit to this idea of staying closer to a touristed area, and that just kind of went by the wayside when we, we found the land because we we realized that now that we're in this sort of like a little bit more of a remote area and and we're we we saw the the impact of of what uh, deforestation has done to the cloud forest door. I mean it's it's right there. It it became much more strong for us, much more of a strong calling for us to, to do something about that, to do something about more regenerative for the land. And also just out of necessity, because we were having a really hard, for the first time in my life, I was having a hard time growing food. I mean, I just, you can't just like throw seeds in the ground and expect, you know, like the Garden of Eden to sprout up when you're dealing with a compacted, degraded pasture of, you know, what's, what's left after the land has been uh, deforested. So it was like the regeneration was just as much out of necessity so that we could live here as it was as, as an ideal, you know, as sort of this more like idealistic thing to do. It was like, no, we have to improve the soil. We have to make this better because you can't grow anything here. It's, it's, the land is really degraded. It's in bad shape. Um, 
so yeah, we kind of went from watching uh, reality TV survival shows to uh, becoming uh, uh, land regenerators and uh, large-scale permaculturists in the in the course of uh, about a year, actually. <laughs> but um, really, that's that's how we got started. So I, I I like to to get that out there because I think a lot of people think you really need to, you know, really you have to do your PDC course and you have to know all these things before you start. And I think really like just getting in there and living on your land and camping on your land and being in it, you know, observing it, seeing where the water goes when the rainy season starts, uh, how to start moving, how to start channeling and drainage or making swales or these things or whatever it is that you're going to do. You have to be there. You have to be there. You can sit at home and draw pictures in your notebooks all day long, you know, but when you're there, everything, everything changes. So we, we jumped in with both feet and uh, we broke all the rules. We didn't start small. We started with four large structures and we made a lot of mistakes and we learned a lot along the way, but it, fortunately, because we're both really hardworking and tenacious, it, it, it worked out. Well, sort so of. <laughs> tell me a little bit about this learning curve. Uh, you know, you said you, you weren't coming down there with a ton of education and experience of how to do especially larger scale projects. Um, mm -hmm. How did you start to experiment and try things out to see what would work in your context? Um, well, at first I was, you know, everything seems really great because uh, we had leveled out a very small area of not leveled, but flattened out a little bit and had it, had it cleared by a, a tractor, a 500 square meter area. And so the soil had all been turned over and, you know, the grass was underneath and, and I just, I started there and I stuck a couple of tropical sweet potatoes in the ground, some camote in the ground and they did great. They just ran rampant and I had a great sweet potato crop and I had a great squash crop. Um, but I learned the hard way about adapting to your climate and not trying to grow temperate climate zone things in a subtropical uh, forest. Um, like I planted all, you know, like salad stuff, like ridiculous things, radishes and sprouts and, you know, greens and all these things. And, and they just, everything just died. It either wilted in the ground or the insects just came and devoured it or a hard rain came and just knocked everything out. So then I, I figured out, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to live here and I'm going to grow food, I have to really look around and see what people are eating and see what people are growing. And this is how I discovered the plantain and the cassava mm. and the big, tough tropical foods that, you know, are hard and scaly on the outside and soft and delicious on the inside. And I, I, I had to learn how to adapt to my climate and adapt to the, 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 the insects and the rain and these really harsh climactic conditions that, you know, when you, you come from North America, like they don't really seem harsh. You're like, well, wait, wait, it's 75 degrees every day. It's, it's so nice here, you know, until it starts raining and it's, oh, yeah. Hours and hours and hours of rain <laughs> that, that like every drop can fill a teacup and it's just battering you down. I mean, then, then you realize like, no, this is not a, this isn't just like a, a, a ready-made garden of Eden. This is going to take some adaptation and that's going to, it's going to take some work. And it's, what it did was it, 
it, it, it also opened our eyes. And even my partner, Juan, who's Equatorian, but who had never lived in a subtropical cloud forest either. He's, he's from the Quito area. Um, you know, when we came down, we saw, we saw this, what, what we now know are artificially planted pastures, sown grass seed. And, um, you know, just the quick background, what happens is once the land is deforested, the, the logging companies, they sell off the land, usually very cheaply, once they've taken out all the trees and the useful materials, to the people that work for them. Actually, the guy that we bought our land from, was a, he's an Ecuadorian lumberjack. He was in there cutting down the trees, and then they, they sell off the land to the workers. And um, people that don't have the money to do uh, any sort of intensive agriculture on that on that land, they just sow grass seed, and it's it's GMO cloned European grass seed. It's rye grass. It's things that are just they're not at all native to the tropics. And then they move the cows in, and and it's you know there's no one to blame here. I mean, it's not like. You know, I'm certainly not going to blame subsistence level dairy farmers for deforestation. I mean, they're 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 picking up the remains of of what's left after the extraction. You know, so this is certainly not the fault of the poor guy that we bought the land from. You know, but this is the condition that it's left in, and um, it really made me appreciate that I have a really uh, a North American or European eye for land because we had seen some other properties and to us like it was jungle it was just like this is jungle this is this is like you can't live here there's no open space and that was our perception coming from North America was that somehow land that's been cleared up a little bit is is better and that's a total misperception I just want to, anybody out there who's going to listen to this that is looking for land in tropical or subtropical areas, if somebody wants to sell you a forest, buy the forest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know sure. I mean? No, but it, it, there's this perception everywhere that I've been where when people are getting ready to sell their plot, they'll take out all the vegetation. They'll leave it bare. I don't know where this yeah. comes from, but it, it's, I, it's rampant everywhere. It's not, but it's like somehow it's like we're, it's like when you, before you sell your house, you know, you clean it, right? It's like, <laughs> yes. no, I have to clean my land. You know what I'm like? Yeah. No, I mean, that's what they call hard. it in Guatemala. You, you do the limpieza, yeah. Yeah, the limpieza, you clean the land. They call it the same thing here. And, you know, and I, and, and, and we were talking to some friends of ours who are, have a mature uh, uh, agroforestry project where they grow cacao. And I'll never forget what my friend, who's now my friend, Augustina said, no, it's, it's más fácil cuando es bosque. It's, it's easier when it's, you can start with a forest. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we don't know this coming from North America or Europe, but subtropical forest, a lot of it is you get in there with a machete and you can, you can hack down a lot in a day. And you get a lot of it is just like this sort of rampant, viney, spindly growth that is, it's, it's very easy to cut. But then you can clear up like small, little small spaces as you go. The canopy is intact. Canopy is so important because you don't have the rain battering the ground and leaching out all the nutrients and just washing it away in a mud. And as you're, you know, cutting some of this vegetation little by little, you have your green manure, you have your, you know, your, 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 your biocompost is right there. But I didn't, we didn't know this. And we just bought this grassy land because 
we, we had no idea. We thought it was a meadow. There's no meadows. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't happen. <laughs> you know I mean? But that is that's how clueless we were, you know, four years ago. It was, it was like, oh no, this is cleared up. This will be so much easier. We just have to, we just have to plant things, you know. Right, right. And and not knowing about now, I've I've, I've really gone into the the education of it, and I I'm so fascinated by the the process of. Um, of ecological regeneration and and historically i mean historically it's so fascinating to find out that how botanists are are figuring out through carbon dating they're finding seeds that have been in cultivation for over 5000 years i mean now the oldest cacao um, you know the chocolate plant is we know is in is was found in ecuador 5300 years old um, and that, you know, manioc, cassava has been in cultivation for 8,000 years. Um, wow. th- yeah, there's there 138 crops have now been uh, identified in the Amazon basin of Ecuador, Peru, and Colombia. And these are all cultivated crops that are older than 4,000 years. More than half of them are tree crops. So what that what this is, is is what now the historians, the archaeologists, and the botanists are revising the history to say is that the that these subtropical and, and and tropical forests are not this untouched virgin land that people thought that they were. They were actually managed food forests. Sure. Yep. It's, it's no accident that there's 138 edible species. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't happen by accident. Yeah, yeah. If you're walking through a wild forest, you might find a couple things you can eat, but you're not going to find 138 things that you can eat. And you know, to me, that, that's just fascinating. Is what, what we can now learn from the people who managed this land previously. You know, it's like coming in here with our our permaculture and our agroforestry, like, you know, like these are new things. Right. And, and they're so not, you know what I mean? What it is is we're actually learning from, from these people in the past who unfortunately, and then people say, well, the next obvious question is, well, what happened to them? Is, well, 90% of them were wiped out by European diseases before they even ever saw a white person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the, the land that the, the later explorers after the conquistadors encounter this virgin wilderness that they wrote about it if they would have been if they would have seen it a hundred years before that they would have seen cities cities in the amazon with thriving agroforestry systems behind them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know so that's that's to me is like super interesting that what we're doing is we're actually recreating we're not creating anything we're recreating how to manage, how to intelligently manage forest lands so that people and animals and plants can all live there. Yeah. Um, well, so let's talk specifically about the environment that you're in then, um, the cloud forest, and mm-hmm. a little bit about what's unique to that ecosystem and uh, why it's at risk these days. What's, what's threatening it? Um, well, the cloud forest is very similar to rainforest, except it's at a higher altitude. That's really the only difference between cloud forest and rainforest is cloud forest is usually in the foothills of a mountain system. We're in the foothills of the Andes, whereas rainforest is usually in a, in a basin, right? Like 
sure. the Amazon is you know the classic example. So we're at uh, we're at about two thousand feet, six hundred and fifty meters, um, and so the the main difference in the cloud forest is like the bio diversity is it's not quite as obvious as it is is in a rainforest but there's actually a greater degree of it uh, per square meter of rainforest is the uh, I'm sorry of cloud forest is the most biodiverse biosphere on the planet um, it's this constant presence of moisture in the air that allows there to be a, um, this web this like incredible intricate web of life where every tree you look at has nine million epiphytes growing on it and I'm not even exaggerating I mean it could be nine million epiphytes growing on it and every one of those epiphytes the orchidias the bromeliads is also a web of, of life inside if you look inside there's insects and there's larvae and there's eggs and there's all sorts of microorganisms so the the cloud forest is super important for its its degree of biodiversity, you know, it's this this very very delicate web of life that lives here, and just like the life in the rainforest, the the fertility of it is is it's not an illusion, but it's the the problem. The biggest problem with deforestation is that the fertility is really on the razor's edge. The fertility doesn't exist in the soil like it does in prairie soils or you know, savanna soils where the topsoil is deep. The topsoil here is super shallow. Sometimes it's just like an inch or two. And what's holding all the life in the soil is the lateral root system of the ground cover. And all of the, the trees don't go down as much here in cloud forest as they do in a, in a temperate zone. They, they, the tree, the roots branch out. So you have these incredible lateral root systems that just spread out all over the ground and they're literally holding the earth in place. Yeah. And when those trees come out, there's not only is the rain hitting the ground with more force because you've taken out the canopy, but you've taken out the root system that's holding everything there. So the whole web is disrupted. The whole web can be ripped out by taking out these trees. Um, most of our area was deforested not for lumber but for rubber. Um, rubber was the main extraction crop back, I think it was back in the 50s, in the, the post-war world boom, you know, when everybody's economy was booming after World War II and there were so many more new cars and everybody needed tires for their cars. So a lot of, a lot of the cloud forest here was cut down for the rubber. Um, now what's happening is whatever is left, uh, a lot of the rubber trees and the big trees were taken out in the 50s and 60s. And since then, it's whatever's left has been a lot of um, wood pulp that is used for clothing, actually. Um, so this is why I tell people, like, don't, don't buy, like, if you want to do something to save the forest, don't buy new clothes. Stop mm -hmm. buying new clothes, especially all this cheap crap, like Forever 21 stuff, like, most of these clothes are made from some sort of a, a polyester with a wood pulp. And this uh, wood pulp is being extracted from, from cloud forest. Sure. So, you know, buying new clothes is like, a, if you want to help save the forest, don't buy new clothes, especially bad, cheap clothes that when you wash them, you know, they change shape and you can never wear them again. Um, sure. So that's, yeah. So, you know, so then, and now um, also one of the factors that's affecting us is uh, oil pump is um, 
there's a lot of investment coming into the cloud forest area from India and from China, buying up big swaths of land and converting it over to oil palm production, not for palm oil for eating, but for biofuel. Okay, um, yeah. yeah, so that's another thing that's affecting us. So a lot of people think like, oh, biofuel, like, great, it's green. I'm like, well, not, <laughs> not really. I mean, it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, a hectare of oil palms, I think you can support about 800 oil palms on one hectare. And if that hectare was left to native forest, it could support about more like 2,600 a variety of a variety of 2,600 trees. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, oil palm is is uh, is a little bit more destructive. Yeah, hey, I'm working. Okay, yeah. Um, my friends just came in. Anyway, so <laughs> um, so those are some of the factors that are affecting us. Um, and what what people can do if they're not actively reforesting a cloud forest, like we're here trying to do, is they can not buy new clothes and um, not support uh, biofuels without knowing what you're talking about. Um, always know what you're talking about before you jump on a bandwagon for anything. Sure, um, and certainly in other yeah. areas too, like you mentioned uh, the cattle industry having a big impact in those previously deforested areas. Right, yeah, I mean, it's, our situation is different from Brazil. I mean, in Brazil, land is specifically cleared out for for the cattle industry um, and it's cattle you know Brazil is a big exporter of beef um, Ecuador is not really a big exporter of beef neither is Peru or Colombia um, what happens is that the, the trees are extracted for other reasons and then once the land is cleared like I said it's, it's sold off to, to lumberjacks and working-class people who then the cheapest thing for them to do is to sow grass seed and bring the cows in so it's a little bit more of an indirect process, but the end result is the same. Sure. So it's not clear for the around. intention of grazing, but no. grazing is what keeps the, the forest from growing back as well. Grazing is what keeps the forest from growing back, you know? And, um, you know, actually one of the, the things I, 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 that motivated me to really start learning about this is um, our mutual friend, uh, Atulia, Carrie Bingham, she, she wrote a really intelligent piece, as all her pieces are very intelligent and well-written, on, on letting your land rewild itself. And, um, you know, I think that that's really a, a good, uh, it's a great idea. I mean, it's, and it's, very, it's a very powerful idea because there is this, obviously this perception that we talked about about cleaning everything oh my I have to go clean my land you know like, like I'm scrubbing it like a car or something you know and letting things go a little bit so that animals can live there and, and I think rewilding is a great concept where it can happen but I think it's also really important to realize is that there are places in the world that are not going to rewild themselves I mean we have three hectares that we originally bought. We now have um, 15 hectares under our management because we've, we've sold land to some interested parties. But there's a, we have a whole, I'd say like a hectare of land on the other side of our spring, our estero, that we haven't touched in three years. And it is a sea of grass all over. It is a freaking green desert. I mean, it is... Nothing is going to grow there unless 
we actively go over there and plant some trees. I mean, it is just, and it's sad. I mean, it's like, and the thing is, is okay, you know, if the land is left alone, if the land is left alone for a hundred years, eventually some pioneers will spring up, like these tough, scrubby bushes that could grow anywhere. Some of them will eventually start to spring up. Nine or ten years later, they'll die and fall over. They'll leave a little bit of a clearing. Maybe a bird will fly over and poop out some seeds, and maybe the seeds will hit that little clear spot, and maybe some of those seeds will germinate, and maybe some of those seeds will grow into mature trees. But that's a lot of maybes, and that's a very long time. Yeah. The successional models you know? <laughs> are severely stunted in that area, right? You know, and, and so what, what I want to emphasize is that, you know, rewilding land is, it's, it's not like you're running around at a music festival with flowers in your hair, like, well, I'm rewilding. Like, it, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't, because humans have been so greedy, it, it's not going to happen that way. Like, I'm sort of a little bit more proactive. It's like, look, we made this mess. And if I step in, and I'm not claiming to be, you know, Mother Nature with the wisdom of Mother Nature, but I can see what's going on here. And if I help, if I can jumpstart this process, and I can, you know, plant some baby trees and clean around them and give them a jumpstart, in 50, I mean, things grow fast down here. In 15 years, I can reforest this pasture. It will take nature 150 years to do the same thing. And you know what? In the meantime, like, I will die. And someone else can buy this land who doesn't have my ideas and let it go back to being a pasture or put in some agro-industrial oil palm farm or something else. So I think that where we have the, the means to do it and the will to do it and the, the strength to do it, I think we need to do it while we can. Well, I 100% agree. So with it, within that line, let's, uh, let's talk about your vision for the finished or maybe the ideal state of your project and how that sort of morphed since you've gotten there and what you see right. as its potential now that you, you understand the context much better. Um, well, our, it's definitely morphed because um, we realized that, of course, you know, there's something like well, we talked about this a little bit before that there's a, a little bit of a dichotomy there's a split in how people see conservation versus like you know agriculture right there's conservation and there's agriculture you're either on one side or the other and if you want to be productive and you want to make a profit off your land you go the way of agriculture which usually involves you know, herbicides and clearing and fertilizers and just all this stuff that comes from the green revolution. And if you're doing conservation, you know, your avenues for making money might be more like in bird watching and trail walks and things like that, but you're not going to make money off the land. You're either doing conservation or you're doing agriculture. And what we've come to realize is that from especially now that I'm all jazzed up about the history of the Amazon basin being a managed forest, um, that in reality, if, if, if humans are going to survive on this planet, we need to learn how to do both. And this, this dichotomy, we have to stop thinking in terms of this dichotomy. Um, we have to start thinking in terms of how to manage land 
productively, but also in a way that allows it to be in conservation. Um, so how, what am I talking about here in real terms? So what I'm talking about, okay, so say we have, we have 15 hectares, right? That I would say we could, a good two thirds of that we can leave to either natural regeneration or what we're doing is we're working with a reforestation foundation to plant native trees that need less care. They're not cultivars. Some of them produce edible fruits or berries. Some of them don't. Some of them produce like soap berries and things like that. Or, but we're not, really, we're not really interested in growing those for production. These are just like tough, strong native trees that, that will take hold. They will provide shade. They'll provide biomass. And they'll, they can help to take over areas that we can't be in actively managing all the time. Um, and the areas that we want to put under more, that we're putting under more intense cultivation, we're planting polycultures of highly productive crops that also um, have a high sale value. Um, mostly cacao, uh, heirloom variety of cacao called the Roma Nacional that Ecuador is famous for. And also um, a lot of nuts, um, ginger, turmeric, cardamom, uh, cinnamon, nutmeg. I mean, if you go in your grocery store and you look on the spice shelf, you're going to notice that these are all very high sale things um, that even have good high price points selling as agricultural products. Uh, black pepper, vanilla, um, the list goes on, but these are all good expensive um, uh, high, high point of sale priced things. Um, and then also food, you know, things that we eat, cassava, banana, plantain, camote, Malabar spinach, uh, different varieties of tropical herbs that I've learned how to grow. Um, so that's that's how we see it as sort of a being like a two-thirds conservation, but a conservation that we're actively jump-starting and a third of intense cultivation of things that we can sell and eat. Um, and I think that that... Uh, Will 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 I think that will work? I think that that will prove to be be viable. Um, we have some some good colleagues in the area doing similar projects, and they're they're making a decent living cultivating high sale, high point of sale crops like cacao and cardamom, nutmeg, ginger, things like that. And they're uh, they also have quite a bit of their land under conservation, um, but conservation that they have an eye on it. They're not just letting the pasture go crazy, you know, but conservation that they're, they're helping along. Um, and that's, uh, so yeah, that's, that's really our vision is a, a, a managed property that combines um, the wildness of conservation for the, to bring back a lot of wildlife. And we were seeing a crazy wildlife uh, rejuvenation in our, on our lands. I mean, we see, so many birds species and butterflies and insects and frogs and lizards and snakes that we, we didn't see when we moved here. So we know that we're doing, we're doing something good. I mean, we've only been here three years, but we know we're doing something good. The amount of wildlife we've seen has, I'd say quadrupled with no, no exaggeration. No, I mean, um, to me, that's probably the best feedback that you're doing something positive is when a whole bunch of life starts to come about your efforts that are non-direct uh, sort of, yeah, cultivations of by your own hand. It starts to, to compound larger than sort of the sum of its parts. 
Absolutely. I mean, and, and it, and it it's really reduces, you know, you're, you're reducing your need for, for inputs. Um, you know, one of the ways, uh, I think, you know, our vision has, it's grown from our experience. It's really the best way to put it. Um, it's not just this idea of reading agroforestry books and reading permaculture books. I'm, I'm kind of like the one of those people, like, I read the book after I start. You know what I mean? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah, this is what I'm doing, you know? And uh, and I get like the validation and the feedback, but I'm like, oh yeah, I, I've been doing this. Um, and, you know, for example, like when you're first out there in a pasture, if you read the agroforestry and the permaculture books, you know, add a lot of biomass to your soil, like, you know, cut down, you know, but there's nothing to cut when you're in a pasture. Like you're just cutting grass. You know, there's just like, you're like, where am I going to get all this great foliage to put on the ground? Like, where's my green fertilizer, you know? And that takes time. Luckily, in a subtropical, tropical area, or, you know, even in the eastern seaboard of the United States, I mean, you have pokeweeds that grow four feet in one summer. I mean, there's always going to be some big scrubby weeds that are going to grow really fast that you can start using as green fertilizers, you know, pretty soon. Um, and you, you put those on the ground around your new trees and you don't realize it, but what you're doing is you're, you're calling forth all the, the life that's been underground, kind of like just waiting for something to eat, to come up and start digesting this stuff that you've put on the ground. To you, it's mulch, right? But so this whole like web of insect life and microorganism life in the ground, that's food. And the beetles come up and they start gnawing on it. And the worms come up and then the ants start eating the worms. And, and you, you, you start getting this whole chain reaction starting around this, this tree, right? And all you're really trying to do is improve the soil. And then you have a bunch more insects. And then what happens? Lizards come to eat the insects. And small birds come to eat those insects. And then larger birds come to eat the lizards. So... You know, just put just by putting down some mulch in an effort to improve your soil is like, wow, like now there's all these bugs and now there's these reptiles and now there's more predator birds and and they're helping me. Yeah. You know, I don't need to, to realize just how interconnected the whole process is. If you improve one part of an ecosystem, it starts to run away on you with all the other improvements that come out as a as a byproduct. Totally. And it, it, it really helps when you're out there, you know, sweating your butt off with an acidon and a machete <laughs> day after day, you know what I mean? To see it. Like if we didn't have that feedback, I don't know how long I would last out here. Sure. I mean, but thank God that you have it because it, you know, you hear that little bird, that new little chirp and you're like, I never heard that bird chirp before. What is that? You know? And then you look up and you realize there's a whole army of tiny birds chasing off two toucans that just tried to rob their, their nest of their eggs. You know what I mean? And there's a whole like, squadron in the air. And you know, so you get, enter you get a lot of entertainment out of it. You know, it's, it's fantastic. I have, um, I have a friend, she wants to do a, an off-grid project somewhere in Iceland. And she's really worried about, uh, you know, she's moving out of, out of a city, moving out of D.C., and, she, she's a, she wanted to ask me some questions. And I was like, sure, go ahead. You know, and she's like, 
uh, asked me all these like existential questions. I thought she was going to ask me how to do like a gravity fed water system or something, you know, and she's like, how do you deal with the loneliness and the isolation? And, and I, I was like, look, these questions are so easy to answer because when you get out there, like you, these questions will disappear. You know, when you start to see an, an ecosystem rejuvenating and you're in it, that becomes your entertainment. You know, and the, the feeling you get from doing some purposeful, really like deliberate work that you see such a positive result from, it, it is like sort of this, this existential ennui or this malaise that everyone is, you know, suffering from that, let me get on Amazon Prime and order some stuff to cure my malaise. It, it, it goes away. So the, it's not, you know, it, it is a very human thing, I think, for us to be doing is, you know, it's not so, it's not as selfless as people think, is what I'm trying to say. Sure. It's like, to get that feedback by seeing the wildlife is one thing, but also to cure your own, your own sort of urban boredom. <laughs> sure, just feel better about the impact that you're having on what you have access to. I know that was a big thing for me. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that there's a, you know, to kind of go back to where I started with the, the conservation on one side and like the human side on the other is to realize that these these two sides really can be combined. It can really be one, you know, that you're not, because you're, as a human, then in the ecosystem and really in the ecosystem, you, you find yourself like really healing and curing yourself of a lot of, a lot of problems you didn't even know you had. Attention span, like maybe you didn't have a great, good attention span. But, you know, when you're out there doing things, I mean, the last two days I've been harvesting cacao. And, you know, I have all these little mountains of cacao piled up in the, in the field. And there's probably about 80 cacao piled up in each mountain. And I have, you know, nine mountains piled up. And each one weighs a pound or two. And I think, man, like, you know, I used to go to the gym. Yeah, I mean, this, I just moved seven hundred and twenty pounds, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm running around. And it resulted in something useful. It didn't it just move something arbitrarily. Yeah, you yeah. know exactly. You know, it's like, wow, I just like moved seven hundred and twenty pounds around, and and I'm also like running around a twenty thousand square meter area doing it. Yeah, exactly. And you're outside. You're not like in a building with air conditioning and yeah. You know, I so mean, uh, yeah, thing. like, oh, you know, sometimes I miss the gym, not because it was hard, <laughs> because, you know, it was easy. Because it was easier. It was easy. It was air conditioned. I have, you know, you don't get dirty. caterpillars in my shirt, you know, it's, I mean, you know, I'm not sweating. I don't have like, you know, it's just, so there's a lot of, um, yeah, you yeah. know, get on the incline treadmill is a lot easier than climbing up and down a 40 degree incline. A cacao field hauling out the pods you know what I mean it's oh, relatively yeah. it's actually a lot easier to go to the gym um you know but like I said at at, at the end of it there's not that feeling of of, of reward of real reward of what of I see as being a much more real reward um, well so let's explore that more because that is often what people either hesitate in, in getting something like this started or are kind of like their apprehensions is, is the lifestyle aspect. 
And you live quite simply. I know that your your lifestyle is, is still completely off grid as far as I know. And you, mm-hmm. you built your own house. I mean, you're responsible for a lot of your own consumption. Um, though I don't know of anybody who's who's got 100% down and I wouldn't advise someone to try. But no. tell me about how that kind of evolved because, you know, you said you started by living on tents on your land. And t- right. talk about the evolution and some of the challenges to getting where you are now. Yeah. Um, you know, we came with a tent. It was in the middle of our four trenches uh, that we dug out for, you know, classic uh, natural building style rubble trench foundations. And um, we had a single burner gas stove. And when I, I look back and I, I see how much more comfortable I am now relatively to then, I, I don't really know how I got through it. I think it's just because we were, we were working very, very hard. And by the time you hit the sleeping bag at night, you just conked out. Um, the first four to five months, so it was really not anything else to think about except getting our first roof up over our head. Uh, we, we moved on to the land at the end of July, and the rainy season starts in the middle of December. So we had August, September, October, November. We had five months uh, to get our, our roof up. And like I said, we didn't – if we had started – if we followed the rules, you know, the natural building newbie rules and – you know, started with a nice small little structure, we would have been fine, but we didn't. We we're like, no, we're going to build an ecological regeneration center. We have no idea what we're doing, but that's <laughs> what we're going to do. And uh, so we started with four, four structures. And uh, by the beginning of December, we didn't have a roof on any of them. Uh, we had rings and rings of earth bags and we had bamboo uh, pillars up to eventually hold the roof that was going to go up. And, um, yeah, we were just filling bags every day, putting up, you know, earth bags. And, and that, was, that was crazy. When I think back to it, I'm like, <laughs> we, were, we were crazy. Like, what were we thinking? I mean, you know, uh, we didn't have a shower, but thankfully we have a very clean spring on our land of, with a, a natural lagoon. Um, that we could go down and we could bathe and, and swim and, and get clean water. So that was a, a life, a life, a, a godsend. Um, one thing I just want to interject with with people if they're doing any sort of off-grid living is make sure you have your water source and you know where it is and how you're going to get the water from it to where you're living. That should absolutely be your number one primary concern. Okay. Um, yeah, because like you have- mentioned the last time we spoke, uh, it seems like people really overestimate or overcompensate for the energy portion of living off grid, but underplan for water. And totally. Tell me about how is that how you thought of it from the beginning, and what yeah, like how quickly did I, that I, reality set in? You know, I I had done a little bit of reading about, uh, you know, why people abandon projects. And the number one reason was not having a water source and not realizing how hard life would be that when, you know, you didn't, you didn't have a faucet to turn on and water didn't come out of it. Like just how, how, how impossible it is to live. I mean, you can't drink, you can't brush your teeth, you can't clean yourself, you can't wash clothes, you can't cook. That's it, you know. Um, Without power, you have a little propane stove or a high-efficiency rocket stove burner or something to get started, and you're okay eating one-pot meals for a couple of months. I mean, you're, you're okay. You can get by. Um, you know, uh, 
also in terms of charging things, I mean, a, a, a decent uh, little fold-out solar panel charger with a USB for phone and tablet, I mean, you can get by with that for a while, too. That's, that's what, we still do that now. We still put our fold-out fold solar panels out to charge our, our phones and our tablets. And um, we have a little bit of a bigger system. Now I, I run my blender, but before that I ran my blender on, our, on the generator. Um, so, you know, we're, we're much more comfortable now. We have a shower. We have four. We have three structures out of the four. We still haven't gotten around to building the fourth one, but we think now it might be a cow processing facility. Um, but it's, that's always evolving. So it's, it's good to leave yourself some space to change your mind about things. And, um, yeah, we're, we're much more comfortable now. We're, we're, we're okay, you know. But still, I mean, in terms of lifestyle, you know, um, I'm not, I'm not like really special. I mean, I've always been a big reader. I love to read. Um, but I loved social media. I loved YouTube. I, I liked, you know, entertaining myself, like getting on, you know, Netflix and binge watching like, you know, three seasons of the Sons of Anarchy in a day. I mean, you know, I liked doing all that stuff. I mean, I wasn't like a monk living in a city. I was a city person. And um, I have to say that I, I don't think the adaptation is as difficult as a lot of people presume it's going to be and that they're going to need these things. Because, like I said, there is entertainment, if you're open to that style of entertainment, to take the place of those other things. There are squadrons of birds flying overhead. There are toucans having fights with other birds. There are little electric blue lizards running around doing God knows what they're doing. There are, are ant colonies going around on highways with leaves constructing their houses or whatever it is they're doing. But there's, there's all sorts of things to entertain you, if you want to call it that, and keep your mind occupied when you're doing a project like this. Um, you're also problem-solving intensively on a daily basis, which I think is something that people living in, in cities or suburbs where life is pretty much taken care of for you, um, you know, your, your water and your power and everything is brought in and all your waste is taken out, um, they don't get to problem solve. And I think when people don't have an opportunity to problem solve in, in ways that not, it's not like, oh, let me do this, like, strategy meeting for this, con whatever, like, whatever people do at their jobs. I, I, mean, you know, <laughs> but, like, I have no idea what, uh, what normal people do for work either. <laughs> like, what they, whatever they do for a living. You know? Yeah, but, like, I'm not pretty that remote. type of problem solving, but, like, real problem solving. It's like, okay, so my water source is a little bit down this hill, and I want to get some pressure so that I can take a shower. What am I going to do? You know what I mean? Like that, that's a real problem to be solved For sure. or, you know, like, Hmm, I don't, I don't have a lot of sand or in, in my, like, I don't have a high clay content soil, but I want to make this cool mud plaster that I read about. Like, okay, what am I going to do? You know, and these questions come up all the time. You know, I, I have this, this garden area that I want to close off a little bit and, and I, I've got some big rocks and, okay, what am I going to do? You know, it, it could be like the simplest thing. It could be from building a rock wall to making a gravity-fed water system to like finally putting up your first solar panel. But like every day, 
you have interesting problems to solve and you can solve them. You have an opportunity to solve them. And that will engage your mind in a way, I think, that it, it did for me, that you don't have this craving to watch like all four seasons of The Wire in one day. I mean, I or Game, Game of Thrones. Or whatever it might be. Sure. Whatever. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? for, for me, what I learned when I first started to live like very, very basically, it actually was well before I got into natural building or permaculture. I used to work on trail crews in the national parks. And mm -hmm. we'd go out on these backcountry tours where we weren't even allowed to bring any like real machinery because they're protected zones and you had to use only right. hand tools. And we were in tents yeah. for a month at a time. I, you know? I camped in the Shoshone. So I, yeah, I yeah, of, exactly. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And it, like, <laughs> it turns out you don't need any of this stuff. I mean, there's an adjustment period and it's not like you don't still enjoy it when you have access to it, whether it be binge watching a show or um you know hanging out on youtube or or any of these other conveniences that people have gotten really used to like those are really recent and people were totally fine they had socialized you just, like you would just, right. it's not <laughs> we were fine before and <laughs> right I, I mean i know for myself personally it was really eye-opening to just to realize how little you actually need to be actually a lot happier than when you had so many conveniences Right. And it really kind of meant a shift for me of not going back to a lot of these things or at least keeping in perspective that they're non-essential. And when they're not around, like it's not a reason to panic. It's just there's a reason to adjust. And it's a reason what, to adjust. Yeah. What I found to be much more challenging is the strain on the relationships that you have with people when you're in those tight quarters. And many of you are not uh, like used to living in in communal systems or in, in close-knit families or like i grew up with five kids so it wasn't that hard for me but, right but i mean i don't know and you don't have to get into any personal details but was that a big aspect of the transition into this lifestyle was just like how much oh, more time we, you I mean, with your partner i mean by my partner i mean we're i i i love one so much but i mean we throw hammers at each other right you know what <laughs> When you've got like, when you've got two people off the grid in the middle of nowhere, like there's all the filters. There's no filters. No. I mean, can I can't even tell you how many times the 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 expression "You're not the boss of me." Oh yes, I am. <laughs> I'm like, are we in the fourth grade? Like, what is going on? <laughs> You're not the boss of me. Yes, I am. I mean, seriously, it's like, um, you know. It, it can get really, it can get really intense. Sure, um, you know, I think the larger vision help really, you know, it really helps to hold us together. Um, and uh, we've really come to as, as we've adjusted, and it's taken some time. But holding on to that larger vision, like we're doing something here that's bigger than us. Yeah. One day, Oliver, we were having to put that in like a real perspective. What does that mean? You know. We were we were having some stupid argument, you know, and it, it was getting, you know, pretty vocal when you're out in the middle of nowhere, you know, nobody's going to hear you. So it's like, ah, whatever, I'm just going to start screaming. And uh, this hummingbird comes down, this big hummingbird, one of those big jeweled ones that's like red and green and gold. And it just flew right in my face. It, I think it was like three inches from my nose. And it was just hovering there, like, like looking at me, like kind of annoyed. And then it went over to Juan and it was like, like humming in his face. And then it just hummed off. And we were like, wow, 
you know, I mean, I guess we're disturbing the birds, you know? I mean, it, it was. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's only you out there as far as people, but yeah, this, all right. of a sudden the moment, yeah, okay, I mean, wait, you know, there are other things out here too. There are other things out here. This hummingbird was just like, hey, can you guys shut up? You know? And, <laughs> you know, so no, there definitely will be some strain. Um, it is, you know, there's no distraction. Um, it's you, you and your small group of people, your partner or whoever it is, like day in and day out. And uh, yeah, no, this is no, there's no utopia out here. I mean, you bring all your stuff with you, all your issues, and all your stuff comes with you. And yes, you know, you might be in your own healing process or whatever but you know it's like coming out of the sort of self-care you know yoga world i mean you know people ask me these questions so so was it a, a major healing process for you and i'm like well yeah i guess it was if i stopped to think about it you know right but at but the time a, that's not probably what was on your mind no at the time that's not what's on my mind and you know what i think that 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 the real deep down cellular level healing, it's just like what happens, you know, on your, your, the, those, those, those acres of land that you're not actively managing. Mm. You know, it's like maybe if I'm not in here and like my subconscious psyche meddling around all the time and I just get out here and do some good meaningful work that I see the result and I problem solve and I'm in the dirt and I'm in the nature and I'm looking at the birds and like maybe that stuff will start to take care of itself. Mm-hmm. And that's, that really has been the outcome. Some people ask me about like being in nature and healing and using nature as healing. I'm like, yeah, but just like let go of thinking about it. Sure. Don't force it. Yeah. Don't force it. Just go, go do what you need to do and, and let, let that, let that happen as it will. Um, Cause it is an incredibly, I think that's one thing a lot of people are attracted to, to be in nature. I want to be in nature, you know? I'm like, you know, okay, here, I mean, I don't know about you, but like every form of nature either has its snakes, scorpions, mosquitoes, uh, malaria, dengue, leishmaniasis, uh, West Nile virus. I mean, there's all kinds of things that come out of nature when you're really in it every day. I mean, I'm certainly not out there working in flip-flops and a sundress. You know, I'm, I'm covered from head to toe you know i'm protecting myself from vegetation from you know all sorts of things out there in the bush and you know working in nature a lot of times is not what people think it's going to be you know you're not just what you know winding making flower wreaths you know what i mean there's like it's hard yeah it's really hard work there's a lot of drudgery to it yeah it's not a lot of drudgery and you know and i think that but but at the at the end of it, and I'm not even talking about the end of the day. I mean, maybe it's at the end of the month or the end of the year. Like, I sleep like a champ. I think I sleep like nine hours a day. <laughs> My whole life, I was lucky to sleep like six hours a day. You know what yeah. I mean? Five. You know, I was a terrible sleeper. I didn't have the best digestive system. I had a lot of like sort of like weird little anxiety things. Oh, I can honestly say all that stuff is gone. I eat like a champ. I digest like a champ. I sleep like a champ. You know, it's yeah. You're it's, so much closer to all those rhythms and the, you know, the correct processes. You know, I get up with the light. I go to bed with the light. You know, it, it all those yeah. things. They really, they really help you when you're in it. And um, that's what we were evolved yeah. to live like. 
you know, and then like one thing I just want to mention as, you know, because I, I want to be all, I used to call people that were all like, you know, the yogier than thou, like I'm, I'm yogier than you, you know. We do live very simply here. We do live very close to the earth. You know, we grow food, we harvest food. I cook food that I harvest the same day. Um, you know, we probably consume, I'd say at this point, about 40% uh, of, of what we grow and the other 60% we buy. That that number will, of course, it'll change. You know, it'll we'll start, sure. the longer we're here, the more we'll grow and, the, you know, the more we'll be able to consume. But our goal is not to be 100% self-sufficient, like you said. That's really, uh, it's it's not viable. You're going it's, it's, it, to, you're just going to be poor and depressed and, you know, it's, it's not really, it, that's not the aim. The, the aim is not complete self-sufficiency. The aim is, you know, to have a lot of good things that we like to have around us and to enjoy it. And when we want to go support our local markets, we, we go shopping. It's not a big deal. Um, so I just want to be like really clear about the things that you need to do to get started and how things evolve is sometimes people like you have to put things in the perspective of how you were living before and then how lightly it is that you're, you're living on your land or how lightly it is you're living on the earth and, and realize that maybe having a gas-powered pump to get the water from your spring up to your tank so then you can run it down the tube to have a gravity fed shower is not the end of the world. Yeah. That if you're, if you're putting a liter of gas in your gas powered pump twice a month, which is about what we do, you are not contributing to the fossil fuel crisis the same way you were when you drove your car to work every day. Absolutely. Or even if you took a bus to work every day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, keeping that in perspective yeah. and not getting caught up on this idea of perfectionism or like, you know, there's no virtue unless you go all the way. I agree. All the way. Yeah, you know, it's that I, zealotous I, mindset that, that often can alienate other people who want to make progressive steps in that direction, but feel like they're not accepted by a community that's constantly criticizing every little thing that they didn't do yet. I completely agree. Exactly. You know, um, we have a gas powered pump. We, we still use it. I mean, you know, we're looking forward to the day we have a solar powered pump. Um, but you know, these things, the, the newer technology, it costs more money. We're not there yet. Um, now we're harvesting cacao, so hopefully we will be. But I mean, but we keep these things, like I said, like in perspective. We don't have a trash removal service, so we accumulate very little trash. Like one of those little, a, a tiny little shopping bag, like a plastic shopping bag. I, it takes me two weeks to accumulate enough trash to fill up a tiny little bag. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes three. I mean everything that i is like looks look like it might look like a piece of trash like a a dead battery or a, a lid to a jar that's rusted and i can't reuse it anymore it gets plastered into my walls there is so much trash plastered into my earth back walls <laughs> <laughs> it's like because like, i don't want to have to throw it away i don't want to sure. have to haul it out sure you know and and I'll tell you what, like, I don't know. I mean, you know how it is. And, and you lived in Guatemala. I mean, people in South America are not really happy when you throw, put your trash in their garbage can. Sure. Like oh, yeah. You know, they don't have the luxury of like, you know, just like these massive trash pickup services. Like everybody's paying to have their trash picked up. So it's like, don't, they, you know, I've been yelled at. 
don't put that there. That's private. You know what I mean? So I, we accumulate very little trash. We use very little gas. We leave our Finca once a week in our car. Yes, we have a car. We go out once a week. Um, my partner, Juan, he's a pretty good builder. He builds a lot of good, a lot of nice things by hand. He does a lot of work by hand. And sometimes he gets out the circular saw. And thanks to him being able to use the circular saw, we have nice bamboo structures. We're able to, and a jigsaw. And he runs them on the generator. I mean, so yeah. like we're not perfect out here. You know what I mean? We have a generator. We have a pump. We have a car. You know, we use very little fuel relatively to people in urban or especially suburban lives where you're driving really far or, you know, um, you know, we don't go to Costco. We, we, we don't buy like 148 ounce containers of ketchup sheet wraps together, you know, bring Oh man, home. you don't do the ketchup? See, I would still be on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like you're going too far. <laughs> you were going too far, you know? Um, you know, so it's like, there's, I just, I just want people to know that it's yeah. like, yeah, no, like totally there, there isn't, there are, there are compromises that you make along the way to get where you want to go. And if you don't get paralyzed by thinking like, oh, like, oh, a gas pump. I mean, you know, people make faces. They're like, how do you get your water, you know, from here to there? And I'm like, well, we use that. We have a pump. Oh, it, how does it work? I'm like, gas. Oh, you know, they, they make this. this like, <laughs> how does your life work? <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, how does your life work? And I'm like, look, I can see how much gas I'm putting in that pump every Just because you can't see, like, everything that goes into the heating of your house, the cooling of your house, the cooling doesn't of your mean office, it doesn't exist. Yeah. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, and because for sure. I can see it, and because I have to pay for it very directly, I'm very aware of and I'm very responsible for exactly how much I'm going to use. You know, and, and so I think that that's the, you know, that that's the where where it comes in. And also, like, we're doing a lot of things to make up for it. I mean, we're reforesting acres of land. Like, I can I can actually walk into areas on my land right now, and I can be like wow, it's cooler here than it was three years ago. Oh, without a doubt, yeah. It's shadier here than it was three years ago. Like, I'm, there are, these trees are sequestering carbon. These trees are breathing oxygen. Like, all these things that the, the climate scientists are telling us are the, the most effective terrestrial carbon sink on the planet are forests. Like, I'm making a forest. Yeah. So I'm not going to get too worried. And, I'm, you know, I'm also, you know, I have a composting toilet and I don't use a municipal water system and I don't use a municipal power system. So all these things that people sometimes get a little bit out of perspective and, and, and worked up about is like, you know what, it's okay. Like I'm, I'm okay with the fact that I put a liter of gas in my pump every month because I'm planting a forest and I poop into a bucket. Okay, yeah. so there. <laughs> no, no, I, I completely agree with that. And like, it was, I think it was coming from Larry Santoyo in the LA area and his concept of paying more attention to your handprint than your footprint. And instead right. of focusing or like stressing too much about what you consume, obviously you don't want to over consume and you want to be conscious of, you know, the best ways of providing for your needs. But you should be putting at least as much effort or thought into what you're doing positively, not just to offset it, but to leave something 
that is is bigger than your efforts or your consumption for later generations and you know i think i think you have your priorities exactly in the right place and with that in mind like can you kind of give us perhaps some advice for people who are listening and feel inspired by this project on some things that you've learned, especially through like the succession models of setting up something that, you know, when you start to plant trees or especially if you're primarily focused on perennial crops, you're not going to get a yield from that right away. It takes a while for the returns to come in about sort of planning through the stages. What, what are some of the most important things to consider first and how to overcome these uh this extended period of time before you start seeing especially a monetary return from your investment right um you know i would say definitely um shelter first i mean if you're moving if you're moving into a land where you don't there's no house you know you don't have even a shed or anything a place to live shelter first you you can buy food until you have a roof over your head um but you know, have enough have enough money in your little piggy bank that you can eat while you're building out a house, or you know, and and I would say follow that rule. Like don't don't break all the rules like we did. Follow the rule of like if you don't have a house, like build something small. We should have done that. You know, that was that was crazy. Sure. That was stupid. <laughs> you know what I mean? That was dumb. And um, yeah, definitely. You know. Um, you know, build yourself out something that you can live in or if there's a shed or something that you could remake or a farmhouse, you know, do that first. Um, find out what, if you're moving into a new area, like it's a subtropical or tropical area or it's an area where you haven't lived, um, find out what are the highest calorie, most satisfying things that you can grow uh, in like, say, a three to nine month period and plant those things first. If it's, you know, potatoes or sweet potatoes or rutabaga, if you're in a temperate climate or if it's, you know, cassava, uh, yucca or plantains that has like more of an eight to nine month, you know, turnover, definitely plant those things first. Um, and because uh, those, those are major, you know, that's, that's like a major food. It's not just something to eat, but it's, it's filling and it's satisfying and it's nutritious and it's got fiber sure. and you know, these are like as great as salad greens are. That is not the calorie yeah, like, count you need to be doing about, physical like, yeah, labor. Like, no, like don't worry too much about your salads. I mean, really, like you know, you, I have Malabar spinach now in containers, and I have some uh, tropical basil, and I have like a nice little container garden of greens. You know, because I can keep that under the roof so it doesn't get battered by the rain. But you know, it, it's not like my wasn't my, it's not like my major huge major concern. Um, it's nice to have those things, but that's, that's, that's it. It's good to have. Um, so I would say, you know, figure out what those crops are and plant those. And also understand that by planting those things first, you're also cultivating your soil. Um, for example, here, the two things if you're working with damaged soil, degraded soil, compacted soil, the first two things you need to really think about is shade because the only way you're going to actually – compete with grass, compete with pastures to shade it out, um, unless you're going to, you know, use herbicides, which most people listening to this probably aren't going to want to use herbicides. So plant something that provides a lot of shade, a fast-growing, wide-canopy, big-leaved tree. Whatever that is in your area, find out what it is and plant lots of them. If it provides food, like a banana or a plantain, even better. 
and plant a, a good, healthy, robust, starchy root crop, like a yucca or rutabaga, sweet potato, something that spreads out, doesn't require a lot of care, that you, gotta, you get a lot of the bang for your buck. And also what these root crops do is they open soil for you. So it's like tilling without tilling, yeah? Because when I rip a big, big bunch of yucca out of the ground, I now have this nice aerated passage left for me that wasn't there before. So root crops You didn't have to sweat great. for an hour to dig it out. I didn't have to sweat, exactly. It's great. It's like, wow, now I can put a coffee tree here or I can put a cacao plant here or something that's a little bit more fussy and I don't have to worry about it because it's got aeration, it's got, it's got drainage, it's, it's good, you know? Um, so definitely plant your, your, your big biomass cover crops like a banana or a plantain or some big leafy tree um, and, and plant a root crop first. Um, from there, you know, like I, I, I call it like working in chunks, you know, like start from the center and, and start moving outwards from there. Because if you try to just do like a big zone all at once, it's, it's too much to manage at once. It's, it's overwhelming. A lot of your small trees are going to die. They're going to get overwhelmed if you can't get to them. They'll get covered in vines. They'll get eaten by insects. So, you know, definitely go in, in chunks. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much it. Once you've got, like, your your things that you get a turnover in less than a year, say anywhere from three to three to nine months, um, then you've got, you've got some soil opening and you've got some biomass started. And then, you know, the area where say like my yucca and bananas were is now more, I've got more coffee. I've got more cacao. I've got some Brazil nut trees planted. I've got, you know, a whole bunch of things, not on Asia, different exotic fruits. So it doesn't all it doesn't have to stay that way. Like whatever you're going to use as your soil tillers and soil fertilizers and canopy providers, that that's temporary. And then you can move, plant those a little bit further out in their wake. Plant the things that you know you want to focus on being more productive and say more of like a three to five year future, right? And then. Put more bananas and yucca or sweet potatoes or whatever it is that you your plant you're planting in your area a little bit further out. Harvest, cut it down, move a little bit further out. So that's how we work. We work mm. with yucca in the ground to till the soil, bananas overhead to provide canopy and a lot of green matter, and then you know what was once all just bananas and yucca is now more of a, a, a polyculture, more of a perennial forest, and we just kind of like keep keep moving in that way. Um, that's like a kind of a tried and true uh, subtropical agroforestry uh, system that works. Sure, sure. Um, nice. Yeah, so. Yeah, those are all yeah. really good and very practical things that people can keep in mind, especially if they're starting a project with a similar context like the one that you have. Um, man, there's, there's so many things that I would love to talk about. We covered a lot of ground the last time we chatted too about sort of the context in which people are growing and selling things in your area. And, you know, let's, let's plan on doing a, a follow-up maybe in a year or so. I would love to hear how this continues to evolve and you know, the new things that you're trying out. This is a really cool project I want to keep tabs on. So yeah, Kristen, Definitely. thank you so much for, for making time for us today. Um, it was a real pleasure and, and thanks again to Atulia for putting us in touch it's, it's been wonderful getting to know what you're doing down there and um, man I really miss that region of the world though I'm having a great time in Spain too 
Yeah. I'll have to get back over there sometime, especially Ecuador. Absolutely. It's been it's been like yeah. eight years since I've been there. That place is gorgeous. Yeah, actually, yeah, let's stay in touch because maybe you can, you know, come help me teach a workshop or something. Oh, here. that'd be super fun. Yeah, likewise over here, here when I get established too. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, again, thanks so much for taking the time um, and we'll talk again soon. Okay, great. Ciao. Bye. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by topic rather than wading through more than 100 interviews by typing in any keyword or topic that you're looking for in the search function on the podcast page. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, to beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design, philosophy, and so much more. Thank you so much to those of you who've taken the time to reach out via comments and emails. Your contributions help me to make this the conversation that it's intended to be and helps me create more of the content around the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, questions, or suggestions, be sure to send them to me at info at abundantedge.com and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so I'll catch you on next week's show.